Welcome to Film School Radio, the on-air online showcase for the best in independent documentary and foreign films. Every Friday morning from 9 to 10 a.m. Pacific and online at filmschoolradio.com. I'm your host, Mike Kaspar. Filmed from 2017 to 2020, Women in Blue follows Minneapolis' first female police chief, Janae Harto, as she works re to reform the Minneapolis Police Department by getting rid of bad cops, retaining the rest, diversifying the ranks, and promoting women who statistically use less force than their male counterparts in every rank of leadership. Women in Blue focuses on four women in Harto's department, each trying to redefine what it means to protect and serve. The film again is called Women in Blue, and we're joined today by Dietra Fijel. Dietra Fijel, welcome to Film School Radio. Thank you so much for having me. You started filming this, as I said, uh, in 2017. What drew you to the Minneapolis Police Department to want to do this particular story? Well, I, I came in wanting to do a film about women in policing. I had done some research and realized that there was a movement in the 1990s to try to get more women into police forces because they communicate better, de-escalate better, and tend to use less force. And I wondered why no one was asking the question or thinking about what could women bring in a time when our country was struggling with police violence. So I knew I wanted to do a film about women in particular. And so then the question becomes, where would I go? It would make sense. And so obviously I was very excited when, you know, that Minneapolis had a woman chief. And when I finally got to her, she what, was just starting a recruitment campaign for women literally that same month. And so she was really excited about an independent film being made. And she basically said, if any woman in this police department it wants to make the film with you, you can follow them anywhere. So it was a kind of incredible access. Um, but she wanted the lives of women officers elevated. And that's how I got to Minneapolis. I don't know a lot about policing. I have relatives who have been police officers, but I know that there are, um, and for some good reasons, are a, usually a pretty close-knit society, and, it's, and, and especially in recent years where they've been under more and more scrutiny. So this is, the level of access that you have in this film is, is a blessing, and it's also, I would think, a bit unusual. Thankfully, you got the imperature of the of the chief of police, which I, you know, I doubt you would have been able to make this film without that. But it certainly serves the purposes of showcasing how women impact law enforcement. What were, was there a particular person that you met? the first person that you sort of started to follow or was it a matter of, you know, how did you, how, how did that begin that process? Who did yeah. you approach first? Well, I was really lucky because um, Chief Arto literally got all the women in the department into a room and gave them, paid them. I was able to talk to all the women about what sort of my intentions were that I also was, it was very important to me to be able to go home with women. So I could sort of lay out the whole thing in front of everybody. And I knew the first person I met in the film is Sergeant Alice White. And she was sitting in the front row and, you know, she started talking and I just, there's something sort of so warm 
about her and we were both talking about how our daughters uh, till very late slept in bed with us and was that bad or good but uh, so I was relating to her just as a woman and as a mother so she was the first person um, and then basically from that meeting I just followed you know up with people and just really wanted people who would be open and who would let me kind of go with them over the course of several years so I really tried to not under uh, sell, but over, you know, make it clear that I would be there a lot. And then the women that I followed all said, yeah, they were all really ex- excited and open to that possibility. You have uh, cops on the beat with, in, the, in the form of uh, Officer Aaron Grabowski. You have leadership, management, and all of them illuminate a particular part of the law enforcement experience either at the ground level or the management level, but all of it comes back to sort of barriers, kind of overcoming stereotypes, overcoming kind of institutional and cultural disadvantages that women face. You're not shouting at people during the course of this film. These are stories that sort of organically unfold, but all of these women come to a point in their careers where there's just this I don't know what, if I'm mischaracterizing this, please say so, but how would you, how would you characterize what it's in terms of a career and affecting change in the, in any police department? I don't think Minneapolis is that unusual uh, when it comes to these kinds of issues. What would you, how would you characterize an experience of a woman in law enforcement? And that's a pretty broad question, but piece out that however you want to. I mean, you know, look, it's policing is an institution that was started by white men. And um, it is an institution that has not been very welcoming always to people of color and to women. Um, And, you know, in the 90s, when Chief Arteau came, it was, you know, the, the hostility was very intense. And it was, you know, women weren't backed up, you know, put in danger. And now... I think there's a lot of lip service to, yes, it's great that we have women. And you talk to a lot of men and they'll say, yeah, we should have more women. We should definitely have more women. But it's the kind of sexism that is still pervasive in a lot of other professions as well. When Chief Arteau had to resign because of an officer-involved shooting, I mean, the thing that was really shocking to me was just how quickly the the department reverted back from a department that had really championed women to just an ordinary department. Like there was no, it had gone back all the way. There's so many factors to consider, but whenever you're trying to change an institution, you have to buy into saying we want to change this. We think it's important to have women there. And that really hasn't happened either in Minneapolis or in the country as a whole. I mean, there's still... 12% 12% women, there were 12% of women in the 90s. It's a kind of a stagnant number. And for me, it's not just about women, because this isn't just an issue of gender, you know, parity in the workplace. I, I really think this is about changing the culture of policing, which has been toxically masculine and aggressive, and really understanding that if it would take more than a couple of women. And one of the things that I saw was how isolated and diminished 
women were, where their strengths and their power weren't always recognized. And, you know, some of the women in the film actually leave the department in, in a kind of protest. But, you know, look, there's been systemic racism in police departments and I think that's generally kind of accepted as something that as a nation we need to really look at and really uh, work, work on some massive changes to. But there's also systemic sexism. And I think the thing is that that sexism and the, the lack of women and the in police forces, I think, actually affects communities of color because it's the kind of aggression that you see uh, I think is perpetuated by an institution that is is so guarded being more masculine. And the thing is, again, if you talk to almost any man in the police department, who will say, yeah, be great if we had women. But the question is, are, you know, no one's been willing to do the kind of work to recruit women and to make them feel comfortable once they're in, you know, in the profession. By almost any measure, women being in the police department make it a better police department. This is the thing that is so frustrating, whether it be at management level, whether it be at, at uh, officer on the street level. There is something about women statistically use less lethal force less than men do. There's also a couple of institutional reasons, in my opinion. I'll just sort of expound a little bit. Police unions. I doubt, and I don't know this statistically, I don't know, I just sort of anecdotally, I doubt there are any women in, in the upper regions of any police union in this country. I, I mean, I'm, there's probably some exceptions, but I doubt that there are very many women in, in the leadership of police unions. And to me, they have been maybe the largest, biggest impediment to reforming police departments of any other issue. Yeah, I mean, I couldn't agree more about the police unions and their detrimental effect because, you know, when we think about, it's hard for me sometimes because people talk about police as, and most people I know, progressive people, just sort of a blanket thing of like all police officers are aggressive, all, you know, there's a kind of monolithic thinking. And yet, unfortunately, to some extent, the police unions are really that caricature where they're they're really about they don't believe in de-escalation they actually believe in you know that this idea that you know there are these people out there and we have to go get them and look trump said don't worry about about to hit the person's head you know don't you don't have to protect them right so that's the whole kind of police union mentality which is there are these wild people out there. There's a lot of white supremacy in there and we got to like kind of control them. And, but ironically, the police union in Minneapolis does have some women and they kind of tout them and they bring them out, kind of show them. And the thing about it is, you know, people always say to me, well, what, you know, look, there are Karens, there are racist women. And I want to say, yes, there are. And the women that are in the unions are the women that have kind of bought into this sort of aggressive, toxic police culture. They're not the women who are going in there to try to change it. They're not the Alice Whites who, you know, saw her friends in her black neighborhood get beat up by the police and said, you know what, I actually want to be a person on the inside who's the police officer that I wish that I met. So yeah, police unions are, are you know, very, very, very toxic and often at odds with police chiefs. 
So while everyone looks at the police chief and says, why aren't you doing more? As a police chief, you can put someone through internal affairs, do a whole investigation, decide that this person should not be in your police department, that they are a danger to society and the union can grieve it and the person can be back on the job. And in Minneapolis, there's that weird law where 50% of the time the union wins. You have women in the union. You do. And you're right. And it's a part of the culture. And I get it. I mean, I, and I'm not expecting all women to feel a particular way, one way or the other about how they view police unions or policing. But there, but police unions seem to foster an us versus them mentality in police departments. Absolutely. The other thing that's insidious about police, and I, I found this in my work as a political person when I was running campaigns, is especially at the local level, if you do not get a police and fire endorsement, you're probably not going to win at the municipal level. If mm-hmm. you're running for city council, mayor, DA, whatever it is, it is absolutely critically important to your chances of winning to get fire and police unions to be on board with you. And this gives them a disproportionate amount of sway at this level, at the level we're talking about. And this is across the country. It is almost without exception. that. The, and I have always thought of this as this kind of, but this insidious influence that police and fire have on our politics. But it begins at the very basic level of governance in this country. And I'm not saying all police are horrible or that every issue that they want to, you know, bring to the front is a bad thing or somehow it's racist or anything like that. But it is a disproportionate amount of, of power in the hands of very few people. Well, absolutely. And, you know, I don't can't think of very many jobs where there could be a whole very complex vetting process. It's not like the police are quick to say we want to get rid of an officer where your job and through a whole investigation that they could say we need to get rid of this person. And then someone can just say, nope, and then they're back on the job. And then imagine for someone like Chief Arteau, how disheartening it is to be trying to reform your police department and fire someone and then have them back uh, on the job the next week. And as she would say to me, what does that say to the rank and file about my power? But, you know, one of the things I want to say about women as a whole is like, of course, this is about how we're, we're raised and gendered. And I'm not, I don't think that we shouldn't have men. I just think that women have tended to be raised to be not to use their fists, right? To use their words and to be a little bit more nurturing. And, you know, my hope would be that if you had, let's say 50-50, there's a program, there's an organization right now that's looking to have 30% women. But I really think we should be trying to get 50%. And if maybe that could change be part and parcel of a whole idea of changing what we think police should do. So instead of it being about running and gunning and jumping, you know, it's like 85% of police work is just people work. And what if we really advantage that and we looked for that? A friend of mine is a police officer and she was a social worker first. And I think that's really, really great training, right? And that's more the kind of person that I think that we want, male or female, which is somebody who's there to care for the community and not to enforce laws. I agree. And I, I want to remind our listeners, we're speaking with Deetra Fischel. She is the uh, director of this terrific documentary film called Women in Blue. And it is an this is independent lens and it will air on February 8th, 2021. 
thank you for clearing that up. So it'll be an independent lens release. Uh, you'll be able to see it on February 8th. And Independent Lens is an incredible platform for documentary filmmakers. So I'm so ha happy that you're going to be on that. And I'll leave this. This will be my last point in all of this. You know, it's for, in terms of public perception of police, what is the most popular show about police? Cops, right? It's syndicated. You see, it's it's ubiquitous or on TV. And what do you see cops doing? Generally speaking, running and jumping and leaping over fences and chasing down bad people. You don't see you don't see a whole lot more uh, about law enforcement than that. And I do think that that's part of our perception issues when it comes to law enforcement. Having said all of that, and I, I know I went on a little bit of a rant there, but all of the people in the film are so um, compelling and so engaging. And one officer, Aaron Grabowski, I was particularly drawn to because I think in many, some ways she embodies so much of what it, the issues for women in law enforcement are. I mean, her father was in, uh, in law enforcement. It's part of the uh, sort of a family tradition, family culture, the respect for law enforcement. She's genuinely interested in being a good police officer. And I just felt just watching her sort of over the course of the film, she is kind of an embodiment of what the film is about, the challenges and some of the rewards that come with being a police officer. Is that sound fair to Officer Grabowski? Yeah, I mean, I think the thing about her story is that being, you know, flying through the middle of the night in a patrol car going somewhere is is very scary. It's not, I mean, and I think as we talk about reimagining policing and changing policing, I think we have to acknowledge that, you know, there is violence in our cities and it is scary. So she's really dealing with just everything from, you don't know where you're going, you don't know what's gonna happen and you're out there with a lot of men. I think it was when she first started with her partner, Patrick, she didn't love working with him because she felt he was too aggressive. And that really stuck with me. I was always thinking about that while over the years that we were filming. But I think one of the things that happens to her during the course of the film over years, and you got to remember that Minneapolis, George Floyd was not the first killing of a person of color, of a person. There were a series of um, tragic deaths by the, at the hands of the MPD over the time that we were making the film. And the community you know, is really angry at rightfully so, but a lot of that got really pushed on to these cops and you'd go onto scenes and they'd be called right. murderers. And I think what's, what's tragic a little bit about Aaron's story is that I think along the way she did get a little hardened. And to me, a really amazing moment in the film is when she pushed somebody, she got really angry and she didn't do anything that's, you know, hurt him. But she pushed him and she was clearly mad. It wasn't part of the job. Lots of cops do that. But she had, she told her partner in the car afterward, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to do that. And instead of engaging with her in a discussion about what they should or shouldn't have done, he brushed it off. And I think that's really unfortunate because I think this ethos that, that you shouldn't second guess yourself and that you should just be like, yeah, we did the right thing is also one of the issues with policing. I think that it's too bad that police officers can't engage afterwards and say, huh, did I make a mistake? Should I not have pushed him? How can I do it better? And I think as a woman alone, sometimes you do get caught up 
in a more aggressive culture. And I know a lot of people have said that about people of color who go into the police, into police departments. And that's why I think it's so critical to have people in management, uh, men and women, black and white, who are really helping officers to sort stuff out and to do things from a place of care and not aggression. But, you know, it's not easy when you're, you know, people are screaming at you and you see a lot of very ugly things. And I just always thought that was such a lost opportunity because that was a moment when she was trying to kind of go like, wait, should I, shouldn't I, am I changing? And, you know, of course she has, she did change. And I think that that's another thing that as officers go out into the world, they, sh- they need lots of, they should be getting like group counseling and therapy and all the things. But that's also part of a, a culture of caring that right. says we need to care for the people that who we serve in the communities where we work as police officers. But we also need to take care of ourselves. And that's not the ethos necessarily. And that's what a lot of these women that uh, were uh, that Chief Harteau and Inspector Johnson and Commander Chido would talk a lot about caring for the cops that were working under them. And I think that's an important thing because you do not want someone who gets embittered and angry and then meets somebody on the street and is coming in with all that aggression, right? That's not okay. Like this is a separate person from the 10 people you just interacted with. It's an impossible thing to achieve, but you would like every officer to wipe the slate clean every day that they clock in. They're supposed to. It's called neutrality. And it's it's actually one of the things that they're taught at the MPD. But yes, it is very, very hard. But I don't think there's any way that you can achieve that without starting with officers who really care about those values And then once they're in, working with them and creating a culture where people can talk about stuff. You know, the ethos of of cops is generally been to have a lot of drinks, big drinking, don't talk, just drink and kind of push it down. And we know that that's had really, really negative and deadly consequences. And and that is what you just described has been sort of the, the knock on American males throughout society, right? Is that we don't, you know, we push it down, we drink, we we do, we act out in other ways. And I thought that conversation between Erin Grabowski and her father was telling. I think that's some version of what you're talking about. Because yeah. yeah. you could see the, in the what he was asking or the way he was talking to her, that he was concerned about her and that she was expressing her you know, he was asking her some hard questions. How, how has this changed you in these three years? Right. right? right. What is it about you that's different? And I don't know that anyone else has been doing that with her or with any of these, anybody. And I, I think the fact that he went through it, he was a policeman his entire career, retired. You could see it in his face that he was, he could see what was happening to her, but for, to hear her say it out loud uh, was important for, for both of them. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, I mean, and then there are all sorts of stereotypes. I mean, I'll be honest, that's what I love about documentary filmmaking is that you think you know something and then you realize, no, I didn't know at all. And so I had a whole preconceived notion about what her dad would be like. He was this old time police officer. And then to see him worried about her and worried that she'd gotten too hardened was really, he was so gentle and he was, was not what we expected. With, and it was an interesting moment for her because he could see it and she could see the way she didn't want to deal with it. And he pushed her 
you know, when she said, I don't take any bullshit, she was joking, but yet is that's exactly the kind of ethos that we want to get away from. I think with cops, this idea that I don't want to take any bullshit, but it's right. more like, what can I do? You know, what's going on here? And it takes a lot. It takes a lot of understanding of racism in America and class and, you know, structure and what people have lived through. And, you know, as you're serving people, you also have to have a deep understanding of how we got to where we are as a country. Mm -hmm. um, and those aren't things that we've asked police officers to do either. But I think, you know, as we reimagine policing, and certainly it needs a lot of reimagining. And I think the fact that George Floyd happened at the MPD was devastating for everyone in the film and for me. But, you know, it's reignited my feelings that as we reimagine policing, let's look at something we've been talking about for decades, which is, could we help change policing through having gender balance and gender balance and having more in particular black women, black women from the community like Alice who really understand and understand the trauma. And that's part of, of how they're out in the world. Thank you. I do in our last minute or so, I want to talk about uh, George Floyd, but just for any of the people listening to the sounds of our voices, look at the history, the origin story for sheriffs. Where did sheriffs come from? and why and you'll find out a lot about america and you'll and you will understand i think in a better way why racism has been such an integral part of the of the story of policing in this country and uh, i'll leave it there but over the course of your filming in the minneapolis police department as you mentioned george floyd happened it's it could probably be another documentary moving forward from that moment when we all watched as a white person watching that, I have been hearing, and I know firsthand from, I have a, a an uncle and a cousin who are policemen, and they were both, they're both racist. When I heard about the video, I, I, I and then I watched it, it, it's it's something that I'll never forget because I watched somebody being executed. And, and that's just flat out what happened. He was executed. And that police officer, what struck me about that, watching him, it felt to me like he wasn't worried about the consequences of what he was doing. He seemed completely nonplussed about what that would mean if he continued to to kneel on his neck. And it it was it's an it's an unbelievable moment in American history in some ways. Not it is believable, but it's an unbelievable thing to watch somebody be executed like that by a police officer. I don't know what your reaction was, but I I can't. I don't want to speak for you, but how did you feel when you watched that? Well, I, I couldn't watch all of it, but, you know, no question that it was, um, yeah, it was a murder of the highest order. And, um, and it was brutal. It was a torturous murder. And he cried for his mother. I mean, it's just um, an activist in our film, Nikima Levy-Pounds. And she said, you know, I can't believe that it took George Floyd to wake people up. And I think it's tragic that it did, but the truth is it, it has wakened people up to the level of police brutality, but, at, but systemic racism in our country. It's not just the police, it's part and parcel of how this country was formed, you know, whether it's sheriffs who were, you know, the whole idea that you were gonna get, you know, 
return the slave to their master and how that's embedded in racism. But it is a wake-up call. And I certainly hope that we don't lose momentum with this moment and that this administration uses this moment to really take up what people all over the world who saw that execution, murder, and woke up and said, this cannot exist. I just, yeah, I just really hope that we have the kind of systemic changes that we need. I do certainly think the union, we've got to be looking at that structure and the power that they have. But I think one of the things we really have to look at is what do we want the police to do? And who do we want to be the people that do that? And what do we value? So, you know, a lot of women are kept out of policing because of a running test. They're certainly still use these very physical tests, right? And so the question becomes, are we interested in someone running when in fact cops rarely run and they should often when they run, that's when you often have a shooting. So running can really get people's adrenaline. Or do we want to think about what are the skills that we're looking for? So maybe everything has to be realigned. It was devastating and sickening. I mean, for uh, for me, when you know we had finished the film before George Floyd's death, you know, at a certain point I thought, well, this film has no meaning. Why do we care about women? Let's just get rid of this whole. I mean, this is just so grotesque. And then over time, also looking at people in the community and 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 people in Minneapolis and the Black community who actually don't want to dismantle the police, who who are like we don't, as Nakima says. We don't want to choose between no police and an extremely violent police. We want a police that's going to come and respectfully protect us. So I, I, my, hope, my hope is that now that some of the dust has settled, that we don't lose the momentum for massive systemic changes. And I think one of those changes, I certainly don't think women are going to make all the difference because we need a lot of changes. But I think to say, wow, with an institution that's 88% men that has a big issue with aggression. Maybe we should think about how do we get women in and it's not gonna happen organically because police departments have known for a long time. It's going to have to happen with public will, with mayors, with programs. We're gonna have to decide as a society what we want and then we're gonna have to figure out how to make it happen. And it's going to happen happen through, you know, suits and uh, law and public awareness. I am more sure than ever that women are part of the solution. Police do difficult work, as you said, going out every night or every day, getting into a, a police car, a cruiser to drive around, answer calls, the unexpected. You have to be ready. It is. It is an extremely difficult job. And we ask them to do a lot. And I think it's time to ask ourselves, what is it that we want them to do mm-hmm. and why? And what is the, what are the resources, the tools, the training they need to do that job effectively? But what are the things they don't need to do? Do they need to do traffic stops? Do they need to do mental health uh, calls? Is there Are there things that we can take off the plate for them? Can they be a part of you know responding? Yes. But are they the primary into these cases, into these situations? Maybe not. Maybe not. Yeah. I mean, why should they be doing mental health calls? I mean, it's a very particular thing to be someone who who can, you know, connect with someone who's having some kind of like psychic break, you know? So 
to me, you know, when people say defund, sometimes they mean different things. Some people mean dismantle and some people mean reallocation of resources. And I don't think there's any question that we need some reallocation of resources so that police stay in their lane. Boy, I agree. And I, I think that was the most unfortunate turn of phrase in my life in terms of sort of understanding an issue was defunding the police. Whoever thought that was a good idea to make that a banner, I want to have a conversation with them because it, it just to what you said, it's not about getting rid of police. Of course, we're not going to, no one wants to get rid of police. Well, we, I'm not sure that people who do that are always really digging deep into the complexities. You know what I mean? And, and Minneapolis really made a move in response to George Floyd to dismantle the police, which they have really had to back away from because because of just the pervasive violence. So I just think, you know, when we're having a discussion, we need to have the real discussion. Right, right. And maybe maybe that's the aspirational thing, you know, that at some point, but right now we have a lot of guns and we have a lot of, we have, you know, a major opioid and we have so many issues. Right. We're not gonna get, I don't think many of us actually really wanna walk down the street or have something happen and not be able to call someone. People talk a lot about training. And the thing that I would say about training is you you can't untrain someone's whole childhood. You can't untrain someone's point of view. Like ultimately, it really also comes down to who is coming into policing. What do they value? And what are we asking them to do? And I think that means a, a whole new generation, which is complicated because now we're we're also defunding at the same time, but with the with the money that is left over, and it's hard because who wants to be a police officer? We'd have to ensure, and this is really important for really changing and getting more women. You can't just bring women in. You you have to protect them once they're in there. Yeah. You have to make sure that they are not diminished in that system. So it, it's going to take, society is going to have to create a lot of support because I watched women. I watched women who were powerful and strong and actually really wanted to contribute to a new kind of policing and see them, people basically disrespect them to the point where they no longer felt that they could do their jobs. And that's unfortunate when we have people in there who are trying to create the reform to see them not be able to do it. It is very painful. Yeah. And it also goes back to recruiting as well. A lot of people that go into law enforcement come out of the military. Yeah. We give them military grade equipment. We give them, you know, ha uh, these personnel carriers and the SWAT teams look like the armed forces, as we saw in Ferguson, as we saw in Minneapolis, as we saw all around the country, Portland, whatever, wherever the demonstrations were taking place over George Floyd, we saw military grade equipment showing up for what was predominantly peaceful protesting that went on over the course of those many months. When you put ex-military people in police and you, and you give them military grade weaponry, I don't think that's going to end well. And, um, Yes, I couldn't agree more. And I don't think it's an accident that it was the, you know, beginning of the militarization of the police department um, after 9-11 that really saw an end to community policing and also an initial push to get more women, right? So it was like, forget women, forget community, let's just get a lot of equipment. And clearly we see, uh, you know, horror show that that's created. Well, when SWAT teams are showing up to serve subpoenas, you know, I mean, 
this is you know this is absurd i mean it's yeah it's a it's a recipe for disaster well the film is called women in bloom we've been talking to Dietra fischel the director of this wonderful documentary film. And as you said, it's going to be on Independent Lens, my favorite uh, destination for documentary films on television and Independent Lens on February 8th. Congratulations on that. And stewarded by the one and only Louis uh, Vossen and uh, and so many other great people uh, working there at PBS, making sure that we get to see the, the best documentaries available. So thank you so very much for your time here today. I really thank appreciate you. it. That was great. Thanks a lot. You've been listening to Film School Radio, the on-air online showcase for the best in independent documentary and foreign films. You can find out more about the program at filmschoolradio.com. I'm your host, Mike Kaspar. Thank you for tuning in, and we'll see you next week with another edition of Film School Radio. Film School Radio.